Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here. It's good to be back. Melissa and I, uh, we had a great weekend last week, and I got to tell you, we were up on the mountain, and some folks let us use their cabin. It was literally the most relaxed I've been in years. So I get why people want to be up there. It's super nice. And thank you to Shane for bringing the word last week um, passionately. So let me ask you a question. What kind of a friend are you? What kind of a friend are you? What can people expect from you if you tell them that you are their friend? Now, I don't know about you, but I've had interesting friendships through the years. I know that one of my very best friends growing up, he and I literally grew up together, and we had a very brotherly kind of friendship, and I don't mean that in necessarily a good way. We were good friends, and we weren't trying to kill each other, it seemed like. To this day, he doesn't remember. I don't know why I did it. We got in a fight in a skating rink one time, and, and uh, he said that I blooded his nose. And then years later, he even paid a guy to beat me up. That's the kind of friendship that we've had through the years. Fortunately, we've worked through that. We're the best friends and uh, best men in each other's weddings. And uh, I grew up, though, with this one guy. And he was like a friend that has stuck closer than a brother. The truth is, God has blessed me and continues to bless me with some very good friends I've had in my life. Guys I can call up and I can talk to them about anything and they can share anything with me. And I really believe that no matter how badly we may screw up in this life, we will not stop being friends with each other. And I believe that's something that all of us desperately need. And I think that some of you came here this morning and you are desperately wanting that kind of a friendship, a relationship with somebody that you know is going to be there, that you know is not going to leave you even if you screw up in life, that they're going to be there no matter what. Because in a very cold and loveless world, that is something that all of us need. Uh, as it turns out, one of the greatest epidemics that Americans are currently facing is loneliness. And there was a book that was written on it by a guy named John Cachapo. This was in, highlighted in an article called, Is Facebook Making Us Lonely? And he's, uh, he runs the Center for Cognitive and Social Neuroscience at the University of Chicago. He's the world-leading expert on loneliness. And in his book called Loneliness, this came out in 2008, he revealed just how profound this epidemic of loneliness is. And he said it affects the basic functions of our physiology. He wrote that when we drew blood from older adults and analyzed their white cells, we found that loneliness somehow penetrated the deepest recesses of the cells themselves to alter the way that genes were being expressed. In other words, he says, when you are lonely, your whole body is lonely. We are made to be in relationships. So I want to ask the question again, what kind of friend are you? Because even though, see, I have these good friends, I find it very difficult to be a friend because it takes time and it takes work 
and it takes effort, and it takes availability, and in the business of our lives, you may feel at times that's something you just can't give up. As it turns out, it's also spiritually essential to be in these kinds of loving relationships. As part of his final address to his disciples, Jesus told them, this is in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Okay, that's, that's not it. It's a great song. Here it is. Thank you. Um, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The question I want to talk about this morning is, how do I show the world God's love? How do I show the world God's love? The text we're going to look at is going to come from 1 Samuel chapter 20. I'll be focusing on verses 12 through 17. We'll be looking at some other verses as well. And we're going to continue right where we uh, left off before Easter in the book of 1 Samuel, continuing to go through the book of 1 Samuel. Just to remind you of where we're at in the book, uh, this young man, David, was told by the prophet Samuel that he was going to be king, ending the dynasty of Saul. And after David had won several military victories, Saul began to get very threatened by him. And then he ended up wanting to kill David. To further the threatened feeling that Saul was having, his children really liked David. Now he's feeling particularly cornered. As a matter of fact, his kids are so loyal to David, they're going to help protect him from Saul, even if it means their own lives. In the previous chapter, chapter 19, we saw Saul attempting to kill David. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit so came upon him that he lost control of his body, and he was unable to go through with the assassination attempt that he was going to make. And when we enter into the text today, even though David has made an escape, his presence is going to be required back in Saul's house. There's a festival that's going to be going on. He's questioning, is he going to try to kill me again if I show up? So David and Saul's son, Jonathan, they devise a plan on how to warn David if Saul intends to pay him harm. And then the set of verses I'm about to read, listen to the commitments that these two dear friends have made to each other. Listen to the covenant that they've made as Jonathan willfully submits to God's plan to take the throne from him as the rightful heir and give it to David. So we're going to start at verse 12. If you would please stand with me as we read 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 12 through 17. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness when I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send him to close it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, 
And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. You may be seated. So we're continuing again this morning through the book of 1 Samuel. These were people in a tremendous time of transition. One of the reasons I wanted to go through the book of 1 Samuel is because I believe that we also, like them, are going through some pretty major changes from a government standpoint, from a leadership standpoint, from a nation standpoint. There's been a lot going on, if you haven't been paying attention, a lot of big changes. And we, like them, are having to endure some big changes. Everything we're seeing in the book of Samuel is the establishment of the throne. Someday Christ himself will assume this throne. But until then, Israel is going to have a series of kings. It's what they wanted, although it's not going to go well for them. Often that's the case. When we think we know what we want, what we need, it often doesn't go well for us. So, someday God himself will assume the throne. Until then, we're seeing the sovereign hand of God in seemingly random events going on as he's establishing this throne in Israel. David is in line to be the second king, but we don't know how that's going to play out. We're seeing it playing out before our eyes. Again, in random events, at least they seem that way, God is still in control and in charge. This morning, I want to take a look at the basis of this friendship. God will even use this dear friendship between these two men as he's establishing his throne on earth. It's built on something called chesed, okay? If you say that right, something should fly out of your mouth. It's this Hebrew word chesed, and it speaks of a steadfast, loyal kind of love. It's a kind love. It's translated kindly in some places, or steadfast in some places, or loyal in some places. It's a special kind of love that these two men have for each other. Obviously, this is not in a romantic sense, but it's in a gracious relational loyalty between two people. It's the basis of the covenant that God has with his own people. And we see what God expects us to extend each to each other as we look at this friendship between Jonathan and David. So when Jesus says, a new command I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, this is what he has in mind. So I want to look at the passage this way this morning. Very simply, first we'll see the commitment that love has in this passage. Then we'll see how love responds or acts in this passage. We see what Jonathan is willing to lay down and sacrifice for his friend David. And then we'll answer the question, how do I show God's love to the world? We'll talk about two ways to show God's love to the world. First of all, I want to look at this commitment of love. We see it in the covenant with David and Jonathan. One they'd made to each other. And David is a guy on the run. Very few of us have ever had to run for our lives from a certain individual. At least I hope very few of us have had to do that. But that's exactly what David is having to do. Three times he's fled from Saul. He's going to have to do it a fourth time in the next chapter. So the only way he's going to survive is he's got to know who his friends are. At this stage of the game, anyone loyal to David is putting their life on the line because Saul's so desperate to kill him. 
He wants him dead. That doesn't stop Jonathan, Saul's own son, from covenanting with David in this, this unbelievable friendship. Now, why did Jonathan do this? The truth is we don't really know. And I think such is the nature when we have a friend. See, if you say, I'm their friend because, what's your real motivation for being a friend to them? Is it because they have certain clout? They look a certain way? They act as, is it fill in the blank? What if that friend, your so-called friend, no longer has that quality? Jonathan loves David because he loves him because he loves him. We know this back in verse, chapter, verse 1 of chapter 19. He said, Then Saul told his son Jonathan and all the servants to kill David, but Saul's son Jonathan liked David very much. He liked him. His dad wants David dead, and I think Jonathan at this point can clearly see his dad as nuts. But this is the nature of this kind of agreement. They have the mutual love and respect for each other just because they do. And just to remind you, you know, a covenant is simply an agreement that two people have made between each other. That's defined as a covenant. It can be between more than that. In this case, God is also part of the covenant. It's only nullified when one person doesn't keep up their end of the covenant. If it's a conditional covenant. If it's unconditional, it doesn't matter what the, un- the other person does. So Jonathan's established himself as such a friend to David. We, we see the appeal to the covenant uh, in verse 8. This is David speaking. He said, you must be loyal to your servant, for you have made a covenant with your servant in the Lord's name. This is David speaking. He goes as far as to say, if I am guilty, you yourself kill me. Why bother taking me to your father? He, a friend, he, he appeals to his friend to be the one to kill him. He said, you take me out if I've done something wrong. He knows, Jonathan knows, David's not guilty of anything. But the emphasis here in this whole chapter is on this relationship between David and Jonathan. This is commitment, it's loyalty, it's a permanency of how they're conducting themselves. And it's a covenant made between them, and it's in the Lord's name. And throughout this chapter, the word chesed is used. In verse 14, Jonathan says to show uh, says to, to David to show him the steadfast love of the world. That's Hesed. And also show this to my family in the years to come. He's saying, David, when you're king and I'm gone, continue to take care of my, my household and my family. Now, this is love. See, this is God's love for us. It's, it's a permanent love and it doesn't go away. It's decisive. It says, I'm going to be loyal to someone. Now, that, it doesn't mean... And you can see it from David. Uh, this doesn't mean you stay in, a, in an abusive situation if it's dangerous. And I think David's been a good example of that. But have you ever been watching a TV show or something that's got a friendship or a marriage and you find yourself rooting for him? If you see a marriage about to fall apart, oh, you're rooting for him. If you see a friendship about to fall apart, oh, you find yourself rooting for him. You want him to make it. You want him to overcome the obstacles. Because that's what love does. And it's something that overrides feelings. Notice this is a commitment. It's dangerous to confuse this decision 
to commit this chesed kind of love with feelings of romance. Now, I remember when my wife and I met. They actually have a, condi- they, they have a name for this condition. It's called the juiced brain. That when you're about to get married, you are never in a worse position to make a decision because you're not thinking clearly. But you know what? I, that's also sort of, they call that the glue of heaven that God brings two people together. He, he bonds them. But at the same time, over the years, it, it will take commitment because there's obstacles to overcome. There's difficulties. Friendships are going to work in a similar kind of way that it takes commitment to somebody. It's when you choose to love somebody, even though at times they may not deserve it. This is chesed. This is a committed love, not rooted in feelings, but in this commitment. So that's the commitment of love we see between David and John and this covenant they appeal to. And then I want to look at this way that love demonstrates itself. We see that love doesn't just commit, but it also acts. It demonstrates itself. Now, Jonathan demonstrated this by the sacrifices he was willing to make. And as you go down through this chapter, we see that David does not attend something called the New Moon Festival that was going to be at Saul's house. Being married to Saul's daughter, Michael, he would have had a special seat at this table. And it would have been noticed when David hadn't been there. Where is he? Where is he going to be? And then Saul sees that David's not there, so he starts asking questions about where he could be. David was actually hiding by some rocks out in a field by Saul's home during this feast. Jonathan and David had devised a system to determine whether or not it was going to be able, uh, rather, if David was going to be able to come back. So the deal was... Uh, David, this is Jonathan speaking, I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to my dad. I'll see how he responds when you're not there. And then I'll shoot some arrows out into a field. Depending on where they land, there'll be a signal as to whether or not it's safe for you to come back to the house. So when his father asks questions, why isn't David at the feast? Jonathan tells a lie. He says, well, David had asked me if he could go to Bethlehem to be with his own family during this new moon festival. He wanted to sacrifice with his brothers. And then Jonathan said, well, I gave him permission to do this. This answer did not go well with Saul. Picking up in verse 30, it says, Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Let me tell you, that's a very clean phrase. <laughs> very clean phrase. If you, if you do a little study, that other versions of the Bible use words, I'm not even going to use them. I thought about really shocking you all with but I'm not. We'll go with perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you or your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send him, bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. So Saul's answer was fierce. He's no longer even saying that you're my son, Jonathan. You're the son of that woman. We'll stick with woman. But he said, you're not my son, you're her son. You're acting like her. You're a perverse and rebellious 
like she is. And what's more, the shame of you being a friend of someone about to usurp me is just as shameful that if your mother was out walking around naked. That's what he's saying. That's what the phrase means. But he shows this courage when his own father tries to kill him. He stands up to an insane father and demonstrates his own love and allegiance and loyalty to David. That is chesed. It's showing itself through action. So how does God show his love for us? One of the best summaries of the New Testament comes from Romans 5.8. By the way, I suggest you memorize this verse if you haven't done it already. Anytime I share the gospel, I share Romans 5.8. Could we read this together, please? Let's start with a reference. Read it together. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's an extremely important verse. He sacrificed his own child for people who were still enslaved by their own sins. You go just a couple of verses before that, and Paul, again, in this book of Romans, talks about our condition. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you ever question how much God loves you, look at your own child and ask yourself, would you sacrifice your own child for people who care nothing for him? Would you toss your child out to an angry mob? This is how love reveals itself. It's demonstrated. I came across a story recently about a woman um, that just demonstrated this love for her own son. Uh, there was a couple that had a boy. It was their, their only son. And they, he was the apple of their eye. Then tragically, whenever he was in his mid-teens, his life just went awry. Um, dropped out of school. He got associated with a really bad crowd. And then one night he staggers into the house. It's about 3 a.m. He's completely drunk. Comes in. He falls across his bed. His, he's not taking care of himself. His hair's all matted down. The mother slipped out of her bed and left her room. And the father followed her, assuming that his wife was just going to be in the kitchen. Thought maybe she was upset and would be crying there. He thought he'd show up and comfort her. But that wasn't the case. Instead, he found her at her son's bedside. She had taken her hand, and she was softly sort of stroking the matted hair of the boy that was laying there, passed out, face down. He looked at her and said, what are you doing? She answered and said, he won't let me love him when he's awake. You see, this mother stepped into that son's darkness with a love that existed even when that son was not going to love her back. That's the way it is with God and us. He steps in and he loves us, even when we have given him no reason to do so. This is a love that he intends for us to demonstrate to the world. The question I want to answer then is, how do I show God's love to the world? How do I demonstrate that? I think it goes without saying that within a family, obviously this verse, this passage is very applicable to the relationship between husband and wife, uh, between uh, parents and their kids in a familiar, familial nuclear kind of a family. Uh, yes, you can definitely see it there. 
Um, but God was clear that this kind of love is to be extended beyond our own nuclear biological family. As a matter of fact, similar to this covenant that David had with Jonathan, when you become part of First Baptist Church, we have written in our own, our own constitution a similar kind of a covenant. We have it stated this way. Having received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and having been baptized and being in agreement with the declaration of faith of First Baptist Church, we are now led by the Holy Spirit to unite with the First Baptist Church family. In so doing, we commit ourselves to God and to the other believers to do the following. Now, we list four different activities that we expect people who are part of First Baptist to covenant to do. I'm just going to talk about the first one. It's hard enough. We say, first of all, that to protect the unity of the church, that you act in love toward other members. Now, we go on to spell that out, but in essence, this is all about how we are treating each other. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, talking, I'm talking to you all right now. I'm talking to you all who are sitting at home today. That this is a covenant that we make with each other and God at First Baptist Church. You know, this, just this morning, I'm going to ask you that today that you would make a move towards this covenant just by doing this one thing. I'd like for you, before you leave today, just to engage in conversation with one person that you don't know. I can almost, as a matter of fact, I won't even almost. I guarantee you that there are people that showed up here with hurts today that you can't begin to imagine. I know it. Can you engage with one person today? Yeah, I know it can't be a long conversation, but just ask them, how are you? Tell them it's great to see them here today. And if you're here right now and you, you're not really hurting, you're like, well, I'm just, you know, it's the season, things are just going okay. Well, you're given a gift you have been given a gift for right now. Bless somebody else with this joy that you have, this happiness you have right now. Ask somebody, how can I pray for you this week? And then dedicate this week to praying for that person. There's something else that this unity means, another part of the covenant, is to refuse to listen to or engage in gossip. You may need to stand up to a gossiper like Jonathan stood up to Saul. It's hard to do. At a minimum, don't listen. Walk away. You know, I remember when I was living back in Maryland, I started to ask one of those kind of gossipy sort of questions. You know, you know what I'm talking about. It's one of those questions you don't really need to know the answer. You don't really need to know, but you're just, you just want to know. And I, I started, as a matter of fact, I did ask a guy a question, and uh, he said, you know, I've already talked to the person that needed to know. 
When he said that, I, you know, I felt about that tall. But I tell you what, I didn't forget it. And he loved me and the person enough that he was willing to stand up and say something like that. As we refuse to gossip, God will maintain the unity of this church. But Satan is always trying to get in the door. Always trying to get in the door. Always trying to cause divisions. However he can do it. Using whatever cultural method that he can. Don't listen to it. Don't engage in gossip. Another point under maintaining unity is following those in leadership. The leadership at First Baptist Church is going to do things you don't agree with. I'm sorry. You've got a group of sinful men that God has called to lead the church at this time. But we are prayerfully trying to do what we believe is best for First Baptist Church. That I can promise you. You know, if you're here this morning, you just feel isolated, you feel unknown, you're wondering how you can get connected, um, let us help you do that. We have existing groups here at First Baptist Church that you may not know about. We've got them listed in the bulletin. We've got some that meet on Sunday morning, Wednesday night. We've got some community groups that meet through the week. But we want you to be connected. I, I don't want a church full of people that only sit together shoulder to shoulder. It's got to go beyond that. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, look, I'm, I'm introverted, and frankly, an ideal day for me is when I don't have to engage with another human being. <laughs> uh, I have those days sometimes, not usually. Typically, I'm the person that I'll drop what I'm doing just because I like to engage, but not everybody's like that. But see, this is why we also need you extroverts. Uh, you connectors, you socialite types, you that know how to show hospitality. We need you leading groups. There's a book called Mudhouse Sabbath that was written by a woman named Lauren Winter. And she talks about her first encounter with what she called Christian hospitality. She said, few situations make me as uncomfortable as being a newcomer in a church where I know nothing and no one. Everyone else knows when to stand and sit down, when to smile. Everybody else has somebody to talk to during the coffee hour. And there I stand awkward, ill at ease, my inner introvert yelling at me, go home and curl up with a book. She said, that's how it was my second Sunday in Charlottesville, Virginia. I was at Christ Church. She said, I knew exactly two people. One was my mother. And what single woman wants to get stuck at coffee hour eating donut holes with her mom? After the service ended, I managed to silence my introvert long enough to introduce myself to a couple sitting in the pew behind me. Hi, they said, so pleased to meet you. I complimented the wife's shoes. The husband asked if I enjoyed the sermon. And then they said, if you don't have plans for the 4th of July, please come to our party. You see, this is what we need. This is the connection we need. And I can't do it by myself. I you know, even if I could be the best friend of every person at First Baptist Church, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. Because that is the job of all of us, to be connected. 
This woman, she'd actually grown up Jewish. She'd experienced hospitality. Um, she said, as a new Christ, uh, Christian, these simple expressions of hospitality became commonplace. As a result, she quickly learned what the church was supposed to look like. And she said this, a community of people practicing hospitality towards guests, strangers, outsiders, and the poor and vulnerable. That's a church. That's when a church is flying at the right altitude, doing what it was made to do. It's when it's this. But it starts with community. It's something I pray for at FBC every single day. And I need your help. As a matter of fact, community at First Baptist Church is not going to happen without your help. You've got to be willing to participate. Some of you need to be willing to lead. There's something else in this quote. Look at who we are to show hospitality to. The poor and the vulnerable. See, we also have to be always thinking about those uh, who are in need. Um, we, one thing we do at First Baptist Church is we have a benevolence fund. We take it up the Sunday after we do communion. And that's how we primarily, first and foremost, we care for the needs in the body. If you are aware of a need, let us know. If somebody's shy about asking for help, stop it, okay? Ask. I've been there. We were very poor in seminary, and we needed help, and people helped us. I get it. I think most of us at some point have probably been in a place where we had financial needs. We weren't sure how they were going to get met. I think maybe even it's good for people to go through that. If you have a need, don't hesitate to contact the church. Make that need known. If you're aware of somebody's need, you can also let us know if, you've, if you feel you've got permission to do that. And in closing, I want to simply state, live God's command by loving God's people. Live out God's command by loving God's people. I want to close with this, uh, this brief story. There was a school, actually a Franciscan university, in Ohio, and it posted a series of ads on Facebook to promote some online theology programs, but Facebook rejected the ad because it included a representation of the crucifixion. The monitors at Facebook said the reason for them rejecting the ad was this. They said the depiction of the cross was shocking, sensational, and excessively violent. The university in Steubenville, Ohio, responded with a blog post that no doubt surprised Facebook. They agreed. They said this, Indeed, the crucifixion of Christ was all of those things. It was the most sensational action in history. Man executed as God. It was shocking, yes, that God deigned to take on flesh and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it was excessively violent. A man scourged within an inch of his life, nailed naked, to a cross and left to die, all the hate of all the sin in the world poured out its wrath upon humanity. They went on to say that it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross, but his love for mankind. They said he was God. He could have descended from the cross at any moment. No, it was love that kept him there, love for you and for me, that we might not be eternally condemned for our sins, but might have life eternal with him and his Father in heaven. Please pray with me.
Almighty God, I pray that you would give us the courage to show a fraction of the love that you have given to us, the forgiveness that you have given to us, to those that are seated around us here in this auditorium this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give people the courage to engage with someone today, to ask them, how can I pray for you this week? God, I pray that we would not be a church of spectators, but a church of doers, showing a commitment to you and to each other, demonstrating our love for you and for each other, knowing, God, that we are showing the world how much you love us as we love each other. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love that kept you on the cross to save us from our sins. And I pray that we would never take that for granted, that we'd never take it lightly. We thank you for all that you've done for us, and it's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here. Have a great Sunday.